My name is Mark Vicente. I'm a director, producer, writer, and troublemaker. I'm not totally certain if the trouble finds me or I find it. I'm most known as the director of the film What the Bleep Do We Know, and as one of the Nixium whistleblowers featured in the HBO series The Vow. Let's just say I know a thing or two about cults. I don't consider myself a cult expert, but I'm definitely an expert in being screwed over, waking up, and knowing how to spot them. And let me tell you, they're everywhere. As you'll hear, I have a pretty salty approach to most things, and I'm utterly fascinated by the patterns in human behavior that create the best and the worst in society. I'm part geek, part rebel, and pissed off about a whole bunch of things. Join me as I unpack a whole range of topics to do with psychology, spirituality, consciousness, morality, cults, narcissistic abuse, science, filmmaking, and philosophy. You never quite know what you're gonna get, as it really does depend on what the fuck is on my mind. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening or watching if you're on YouTube. Uh, I took a little break after The Vow Season 2 ended, not from the subject matter or the themes, but certainly from The Vow. Um, And I decided to do something a little different this week, which is have a guest on. Back in October 2020, I was on the podcast Fair Game with Leah Remini and Mike Rinder. Now, Mike Rinder... I sort of met in, in the sense of saw him on television uh, in 2017 on the, in the movie Going Clear, in the documentary Going Clear. And I immediately felt a kinship with him. We're two you know, older guys. We woke up from our respective organizations in our 50s, and I felt this immediate bond with him. So Mike and I have become great friends. And so I decided this week to have him on to talk about The Vow a little bit and also his book, A Billion Years. It is an astonishing book and well worth reading. Let me just read you uh, the little blurb. Uh, The book is called A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life at the Highest Levels of Scientology. One of the highest ranking defectors from Scientology exposes the secret inner workings of the powerful organization in this remarkable memoir. Mike Rinder's parents began taking him to their local Scientology center when he was five years old. After high school, He signed a billion-year contract and was admitted into Scientology's elite inner circle, the Sea Organization. Brought to founder L. Ron Hubbard's yacht and promised training in Hubbard's most advanced techniques, Mike was instead put to work swabbing the decks. Still, Rinder bought into the doctrine that his personal comfort was secondary to the higher purpose of Hubbard's world-saving mission, swiftly rising through the ranks. In the 1980s, Rinder became Scientology's international spokesperson and the head of its powerful Office of Special Affairs. He helped negotiate Scientology's pivotal tax exemption from the IRS and engaged with the organization's prominent celebrity members, including Tom Cruise, Lisa Marie Presley, and John Travolta. Yet Rinder couldn't shake a nagging feeling that something was amiss. Hubbard's promises remained unfulfilled at his death, and his successor, David Miscavige, was a ruthless and vindictive man who did not hesitate to confine many top Scientologists, Mike among them, to a makeshift prison known as The Hole. In 2007, at the age of 52, Rinder finally escaped Scientology. 
Overnight, he became one of the organization's biggest public enemies. He was followed, hacked, spied on, and tracked. Since renouncing Scientology, Rinder has become a prominent whistleblower against its abuses. He appeared in the HBO documentary Going Clear and co-hosted all three seasons of the Emmy Award-winning show Leah Remini, Scientology and the Aftermath on A&E. He and Remini currently co-host the podcast Scientology Fair Game. In a billion years, the dark, dystopian truth about Scientology is revealed as never before. Rinder offers insights into the religion that only someone of his former high rank could provide and tells a harrowing but fulfilling story of personal resilience. So Mike and I had an incredible chat, and I really hope you enjoy it, and I'll check in with you afterwards. Okay, so, by the way, you don't, do you know that you are my first podcast guest? No, I did you not know that. My first. I thought you were already doing podcasts. I was. I mean, I'm, it's just me. I've just been yakking myself, but you're the actual first. Oh. So that's very cool. Oh, that's, that is very cool. I'm very that honored. Very cool. Oh, well, I'm honored to talk to you. So listen, Mike, I, yes, I read your book. I am so astounded at the fucking shit you went through. I swear <laughs> a lot, by the way, on my podcast. Well, well, if you if you've listened to me and Leah, you know that, that happens there too. I just, I think I, you saw on social media. I just, I said I was screaming at the page, like Mike, yes. get out, get out, get out. And I mean, not not like anything negative, just because I know other people feel that when they see me, you know, in the vow as well. Yeah, but the shit you went through is is astonishing. You know, well. It is, although, you know, I don't have a brand for the rest of my life. So, I, you know, yeah. I, and, and yeah, I was in the hole, but then I watched, like, season two of The Vow was pretty revealing. Like, the whole so, Danny yes. story was like, yes. oh, my God. And yeah. I, I, you know, there's, there's so many similarities between the the depravity of Ranieri and the depravity of Hubbard and Miscavige, it's uncanny. It is yes. it like I do the same thing. I shout at the TV, Christy and I shout at the TV while we're watching the vow going, Oh my God, this is just like Hubbard. Oh my God, this is just like Miscavige. Oh my God. Oh my God, please wake up. Wake up. Uh. Like it's the same reaction and the the sort of overwhelming sense of of uh, understanding what people are going through and empathizing with them, and you know, and, and seeing the the rage of of Sarah and her anger and how how she just let it all hang out. And yeah, yeah, being so, uh, so like both Christy and I sort of go, Oh my god, she is so kick ass, and I wish that I had had the courage to do that so quickly after I realized what was going on. I mean, yeah, anyway, there, there is a, a lot to, to digest for us in watching yeah. the vowel. Just like I'm sure there's a lot to digest for you in comparing notes about what happens in Scientology. 
Yeah. I mean, I wanted to know from you, because, you, you know, season two is a little different from season one of The Vow. Like, what was your general impression going through season two? I want to get your book in a sec, but I want to hear your thoughts on The Vow more, a little more. My general impression was, uh, you know, and I have some criticisms about the filmmaking uh, aspect of it and some comments about the people involved mm. and what happened. I... I thought that overall it was excellent and I was somewhat surprised about how much information was revealed in season two that I was unaware of from watching season one. I expected that after season one had sort of gotten to the point where, okay, now the guy's going to get prosecuted, you kind of know the story. So mm -hmm. it was very interesting to me to hear the stories uh, unfold of Danny and her sisters. That I mean, that that's sort of, there is kind of two stories being told outside of the court, which is Danny and her sisters and Lauren and Nancy. That's what sort of drives the, the, court story because a court story itself is not that interesting you know it, right. like it's right. a bit dry yeah um i felt like i felt like season two was too focused on nancy and too i got very frustrated in the first several episodes maybe the first three like why do we have to keep hearing this damn woman justify and explaining all the great things that she did and how wonderful everything was, we already know that it's not. That was mm -hmm. very appropriate at the beginning of season one to try to explain to people, why does anybody get into Nexium? And I told you, uh, at, like in our discussions, I thought that season one was brilliant in and did a way better job of that than we have ever done with respect to Scientology of why would anybody get involved with this and how it's presented and what it offers you and what the promises are and all that sort of stuff. But I got to tell you, I got very frustrated about, like, I don't need to keep hearing so much from her about what a, oh, the poor thing, and now she has to look after her parents, and now she has to do this. Like, like I obviously have some empathy for her, and... Mm. And when it got to the point of her talking about the 20 years of her life that she wasted not having a relationship with anybody because she promised Keith that she wouldn't, I was like, oh my God, I finally really actually feel sorry for Nancy. I do. I feel, I feel, I feel like this sense of this woman lost her life to this, even though she believed that she was doing good, the sacrifices that she made were pretty horrible. And she basically, you know, as I did, gave up her children <laughs> or her daughter to this horrible, horrible mess of a cult. And, you know, I can really see that. But I felt like it was, there was too much, too much yeah. of, too much of her and I would have liked to have heard from some of the other people about 
their responses and reactions and what they were feeling about how things were going. But that's a, that's a, a small criticism in the overall mm. scheme of things. Mm. I don't want anybody to, to, to take away that I think that the show was no good and shouldn't be watched because I think it was brilliant and absolutely should be watched by everybody. And I was also struck by another thing that, that kept hitting home at me, the language of Nexium and how similar the words and terms and concepts of Nexium are to those of Scientology. And that was something that had sort of had impact on me in season one, but, but was driven home even more in season two. And then the third thing that I found most interesting was the, the brilliance of Moira Penza. She did a job that I wish we could get done with Scientology, which was basically to present a case that, that shows that mental imprisonment is just as important and just as tangible as physical imprisonment. Right. And that, that, controlling people through mental manipulation and getting them to believe things that uh, cause them to act in a way against their own self-interest is actually a more sinister way of imprisoning and controlling people than sticking bars around the uh, over the windows or locking right. the doors or not allowing them to get out. And, right. you know... I don't think that that is something that could be done in a prosecution of Scientology because Scientology is protected under the First Amendment, um, which is very unfortunate in my view. But I thought that what she did in making that case uh, was, was nothing short of brilliant. And I am not surprised that that jury came back as fast as they did because uh, you know the 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 stories that were were told on the stand and the way that yeah. case was unfolded was absolutely stunning and yeah. uh, that that was the other big big takeaway that I got from it which is perhaps a little inside baseball for the general viewing public but is certainly something that, you know, factors into my thinking a lot. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when I, when we were doing trial prep, I remember worrying about, you know, did I have all the information right? You know, I, I didn't want to f screw up, basically. And um, she and the other prosecutors said to me, you're a filmmaker, right? We do the same thing. We're making a movie here. We just can see the script and you can't see it yet. So, mm -hmm. you know, so what happened is I was supposed to go on first and then they thought, let's put a teaser in at the beginning to horrify everybody, which, which was Sylvie. Then they brought me in to lay out the entire surface of everything and then take the jury on the journey of me figuring shit out. But, but the jury still didn't know, well, is it real? Is it not real? And then you start giving them the actual proof of all the shit I was talking about. 
it was a brilliant movie, the six the six week movie that they did, you know, in, in court. Astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and I think, by the way, that that it's a, a precedent setting case because I know a, no, a number of other prosecutors are are looking at the case now using the method of the case. But but Mike, I want to you know just to go to your book for a second. As I was reading your book, I kept on thinking to myself, how the fuck is this legal? How the fuck is this legal? Never mind moral or ethical. I kept on, how the fuck mm-hmm. is this legal? How is this allowable? You know, I just kept on yelling at the pages. And it, it was astonishing to me that all of this is just fine. It's just legal. Well, that's that's the point, Mark. That's the, you know... The problem in the United States, as soon as you can label yourself a religion and hide behind the First Amendment, you can basically get away with anything. You know, I was at a hearing um, in the the case that was brought by Valeska Gaida and uh, Gawain and Laura Baxter that was in Tampa two weeks ago about. And Scientology is trying to claim that those people, even though they were children who were being abused and signed their CO contracts when they were like six or, you know, 13 or some ridiculous thing and all these other contracts, that those people must be forced to go to Scientology arbitration because of these, these contracts. And the argument that was being made by the plaintiffs um, and you know, their position is, you know, you can't enforce a contract like this because they were signed under duress. These people were being, you know, threatened. They'd been threatened since they were children. They knew if they didn't follow orders that they were going to be punished, that they'd be sent to to the engine room to clean the bottom of the engines. They, you know, all of these terrible things would happen to them. They'd be locked in their room with a guard outside, having to pee in their in their wastebasket. Like, and the all of this stuff was all laid out. And the Scientology lawyers got up and said, Your Honor, this is no different than a priest being sent by the the head of the monastery to be locked in their cell and not allowed to communicate to anyone. Obedience and blind obedience even in the context of religion is just an expression of their religious faith. And courts may not intermingle or entwine themselves or entangle themselves in making decisions about what is or isn't correct religious belief. And it's kind of astonishing that the judge then posed a hypothetical to the Scientology attorney and said, well, are you trying to tell me that if there was a video of someone holding a gun to a person's head requiring them to sign a contract that you still think that that contract would be enforceable? And their answer was, yes. In this case, yes. And that is how nutty things are in the court system in the United States when it comes to religion. And this is a result. Look, I'm, I am a 100% total 
fan of anybody being able to believe anything they want. They, sure. I don't sure. give a, a damn what anybody believes. It's what they do that matters. And the unfortunate thing is the the court system in the United States is is basically he who has the most money has the most yeah. likelihood of success. And yeah. over the the last hundred years, the people who have sued religions have been pretty typically individuals that don't yeah. have a lot of resources going up against organizations that have un virtually unlimited resources. Right. So right. the law has tilted heavily in favor of the organizations and against the individual. Right. Because I was saying to, to the lawyers, you know, it's interesting that Scientology can come in here and say, we, under the First Amendment protections that are guaranteed by the Constitution, have a right to do anything we want to people, basically. Yeah. Well, what about the right of those individuals to not have to submit now to Scientology arbitration, quote-unquote, no such thing, by the way. Mm. Scientology arbitration is a Scientology procedure. They are asking a court to order people to go participate in a Scientology procedure. Mm. They don't want to. What about their First Amendment right? What about their right not to have to be subjected to these Scientology activities anymore? How yeah. come they don't have any rights? Anyway, I could get on a complete roll about this, Mark, and we could spend the entire time just talking about this because obviously it has a big impact. Keith Ranieri's biggest fuck-up in the entire history of his enormous fuck-ups was not calling himself a religion and going and applying for tax-exempt status because mm -hmm. he could have. Mm -hmm. that The structure and setup of... Nexium is so similar to Scientology, it's not funny, and yeah. Scientology got it. And he could have walked into the IRS and said, look, you gave Scientology tax exemption as a 501c3 religious organization. You have to give it to us. Yeah. He didn't. Had he done that, they would be alive and well. Had absolutely right. Yeah. Abs yeah. That's absolutely right. And that, so, you know, I, I get sort of heated and rambling about this subject because it's, no, no, no. I, I really feel strongly about it. Yeah. And look, Mike, I know, and I think you and I, you and I have had this discussion before. I know how lucky we are. Like I know because, because I mean, I've told you, I went to the FBI in both coasts. I went to different, you know, countries to law enforcement. Nobody would listen to me. Until until the New York Times, until there was embarrassment on the table, you know, at which point the the Eastern District, you know, decided to look. And Moira Penza is the one. I mean, she's the one that said, I want this case. I want to take this on. I see Rico. And by the way, we were we were pitching Rico to law enforcement. We were saying it's Rico. It's all the right. thing. Rico, it's, everything's here. But they couldn't see it until she looked at it. And she said, and I can see it. She said, I can see it. It's very clear. We're, so we're lucky. Right. I know we're super lucky. Um, Mike, I want to I want to go to your book because you know the thing. I think the thing that just to maybe the audience doesn't know this, but like 
one of the things that that really helped me in 2017, you know, Bonnie was just putting stuff in front of me, like movies, TV series, this, that, the other, you know. One of the things she put in front of me was the videos that Jason Begay put online. And um, because she knew I liked Jason Begay a lot. So she said, well, watch right. this stuff. So like I was kind of slowly defragging watching Jason's stuff and then going clear. But I realized now in reading your book, I had so much trauma brain that there was a lot that I missed about your story. <laughs> and of course, your book, your book has a lot more in it than, than going clear. But as I was reading your book, I was like, shit, I don't remember this. I don't remember this because it was one of the, the you know, going clear and thinking about you was one of the things that like helped wake me up. But I'd forgotten a lot because of trauma brain, you know? Yeah. I just couldn't yeah. remember. So in reading it, you know, the thing that struck me again is how, you know, you and I both sort of woke up, you know, in our 50s. Um, and just, it's it's always great to, to hear the story of, of, of another man who who went through that. And we've talked about this and this, this incredible bond that I felt for you even before I met you, you know, because right. of like knowing your story, you know? Um. But I will tell you that going through the book, it was honestly heartbreaking, you know, reading, reading your words. Um, the, the, and I've recommended you, as of the last 48 hours, I've been recommending your book to like everybody. And people have been Good man, good man. Me. I'll, I'll good send man. you your commission. I'll send you a commission. <laughs> I, I have like other, other cult escapees from other cults texting me going, oh my God, the letter to his kids at the beginning. Oh shit. You know, because the letter you write to your children at the beginning is just, it's heartbreaking. And it just really sets the tone of like, oh my fucking God, we're going into hell, you know? Right. Um, but there was so much about it. And I felt the same feeling that you felt watching The Vow. I was reading these things. I've, I've made some notes on certain things. I was reading these things and going, I know, I know how that feels. I know how that feels. Oh, it was the same structure as this. Oh, there's sociopathic leadership, whatever it is. And this constant feeling of I have to keep going because if I don't, I'm weak. I have to prove yes. that I have what it's, what a, the stuff, you know, the right stuff. Yes. So I can't quit. And that was, that was in your book everywhere. Do you mind if there's a few things I want to, I want to, well, if you want to comment on that, but then I want to read you a few things that are your own words. No, no, but I, 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 the only thing I wanted to comment on right now was I just looked down at the screen and I realized, you know, we actually didn't coordinate our outfits today. No. Uh, oh, like, shit. Look at that. Look at, look at us. Uh, silver hair, silver beard, black shirt. <laughs> like, <laughs> I should have worn God. a pair of glasses today, my Mark, God. instead of my I contacts. I should have put glasses on. Oh <laughs> they would be God. like right. absolute clones. <laughs> oh, my God. But you have Anyways. Emmys in the background of your image, you know? Well, You've not those. Me, uh, not, Oh, you can actually see that? I can't see it on my screen. I, you know what? Like When we were talking a couple of weeks now. ago, yes, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking, I saw it back there. Okay, I'm leaving it there now. Yeah, Look yeah, leave that. it there. Um, <laughs> I want to just read you a few things that just really struck me, a few paragraphs. And these are your own words I'm okay. reading to you, and if you have any thoughts. There's a spot in the middle somewhere where you said, you arrived there on a slow voyage of self-delusion. In the early stages of Scientology indoctrination, you need to accept only one small thing you can easily agree with, like the idea that the truth will set you free. Step by step, you make your way until you fully buy in, into even the most absurd space opera fantasies. As the delusion grows, you convince yourself you are the, 
the truly aware person and the poor wogs are wallowing in ignorance. I was like, man, I know that feeling. <laughs> I know that feeling. I know the I feeling know. of the, you've got the secret information, you know, and now you know what nobody else knows. Yeah, the, it, it's very seductive. The, the, best, the best con men are those that uh, can convince you that they're not conning you at all. In fact, they are allowing you to uh, share in the, the incredible knowledge that they have uh, freely and, you know, you're getting all this in incredible stuff and, you know, everybody else on earth is jealous because yeah. or they would be jealous if they knew it. Yeah. You, you know, this and, and the, I, what you said before, Mark, about, about persisting like I've got to show that I've got the right stuff. This is also that that uh, confirmation bias that comes about from peer pressure, right. and you you can't understate the importance of peer pressure in organizations like this, where there is a a sort of an accepted reaction and response that you are supposed to have to everything and you're supposed to stand up on stage and tell your story of how amazing your life is now thanks to vanguard or thanks to yep. source or thanks to whatever and everybody sits around and claps and if you start wondering how come i'm not exactly feeling like that you yeah. start going inside yourself to try and figure out what's wrong with me because it's got to be me because everybody else is getting it. Everybody else. Mm. So I'm not applying myself properly. I, have, I haven't understood what was being said. I've still got things that are limiting me in some fashion. And if you can persuade enough people to look at everything like that, every one of them is probably doubting what's really going on, but none yeah. of them will speak up. Right. Because they are afraid of the peer pressure. They are afraid that the people around them will, will have a less, uh, lesser opinion of them because they, right. they, they are somehow inferior. And this is astonishingly important when you get mm -hmm. into this sort of a structured organization. And it is one of the... the great great parts of the mind prison uh yeah. that you know all yeah. of those around you are all in lockstep and if you're out of step it's you yeah. that's the problem not all the others right and the other thing i was thinking you're right so there's there's peer pressure and then there's the consequences which people don't realize and i remember like i did a a show in 2017 i think it was abc news or something when I talked about getting punished and they looked at me like, what punishment? It doesn't make sense. But the similarities, like if, if, if I was asked to get up and say something about the Vanguard or prefect and I didn't do a stellar job or I had some doubt. And by the way, one of the things I always did is I always fumbled uh, Keith Ranieri's name. Every time I was in public, I fumbled his name. Now they didn't give me shit about that, but they gave me shit about other things. And they would say things like, you know, uh, do you have suppressive thoughts about him? I'd be like, what? And the thing is, I was having thoughts 
that I think that I thought, well, maybe they are suppressive, you know, or right. that thing you did or didn't do is a breach. And when I look at the glossary of terms in your book, I'm like, I can interchange any of my words for your words. Now, I SP is the same kind of, you know, SP is the same. They, 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 we didn't call it a suppressive person. We call it suppressive strategies, but it was the same shit. I mean, suppressive right. strategies, you're, you're a fucking suppressive, you know? Right. So it was it was the same shit, but but there's yeah there's that 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 the fear of the consequences, and then all the fucking EMs in your case, all the auditing you'd have to go through, or the whatever, all the EMs right. you'd have to go through in our case to root out this problem that is yours. It's not his. It's yours. always yours. It's always yeah. yours. Yeah. yeah. And and you know this is something that I've talked about a lot recently after the book. This. And also in the context of the the Masterson case, which, you know, it comes up all the time, this idea in Scientology and similarly in Nexium that if there is something wrong, it's your fault. You know, Scientology has this colloquialism of what did you do to pull it in? Meaning yeah. if, if something bad happens to you, you've got to look within to find out what you did that caused something bad to happen to you. Yeah. Uh, that's a very simplistic, this is formalized like crazy in Scientology. Uh, yes, like it's like what I call codified of... Darvo. It's codified Darvo, basically. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, yeah. It, 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 and it is, it, it is an unbreakable rule and an yeah. absolutely crazily enforced concept for everything except if something bad happens to L. Ron Hubbard or something bad happens to David Miscavige. They are not looking inwardly to figure out what did they do that caused them to pull this in. They are looking for who's the suppression on my line? Who is it that yeah. is causing this to happen to me? So yeah. it works all the way until you get to the top and then it yeah. suddenly reverses then yeah. there is nothing that that person ever does that is wrong. Everything is being caused by the people below them. And, I, you know, I'm watching Keith Ranieri and these women and, you know, call, calling them out because he's having sex with, like, a half a dozen of them, and yeah. one of them has a conversation with another man, and he... Yeah gets down on her for betraying him. And it's yeah. like, I know Christy and I are like sitting there, and Christy in particular is like <laughs> sitting there going, what the fuck? This guy is a fucking monster. This guy's just a fucking monster. I I hate him. I hate him as much as I hate David Miscavige. This is like, oh. And, but that is the way that all of these, you know, cult structured organizations run jim jones was the same and mm -hmm. you know like they're all have that commonality of the lower the low the lower in the underlings on the yeah. the pyramid scheme are all trying to figure out what they are doing wrong or what they've done wrong that caused the fearless leader to be upset with them right. and anytime the fearless leader is upset it's always what someone did to them that caused them to be upset <laughs> i have to um mike i have to read something that you wrote i hope i can find it 
Okay. You wrote here, um, and I thought this was such a great example. It's exactly what you're talking about and such a great example of intermittent reinforcement as well. You wrote, mm -hmm. um, bouncing between disgrace and being a vitally needed cog in the machine was difficult to grapple with. I was constantly trying to figure out what I had done right and what I had done wrong. I followed the Scientology principle that it was always something I had done or my intentions or thoughts that caused the situation I found myself in. It was an entirely internal mental struggle about my shortcomings. The concept that Miscavige might simply be insane or a sociopath was far outside the thought processes I had been trained into. I repeated the Scientology mantra to myself. What did I do to pull it in? Exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And we used to, yeah. we were taught to say, how did I cause it? Like, how yes. did I cause it? He never caused anything. I mean, he was, you know, he was at cause, but he didn't cause anything because he was outside the right. system. You know, he was above the system. I know. I know. And I, and I thought about like just the feeling, and I feel this more acutely in your story than I think that I, what I went through. I also went through puzzling things because when I first went in, Ranieri was like, you know, blown smoke up my ass right and everything i wrote was incredible and then suddenly it switched one day and i couldn't figure out what i needed to do to get back to the, i'm doing good work yeah and it yeah, just yeah. for years everything i did was shit in your case which i know you went through as well but in your case it feels so fucking random i mean it oh, was random to it, me too but i just feel like the backwards and for the intimate reinforcement you must have been going insane with what you went through i was I, I, yeah. I was Mark and, and you know, the, the, the other thing about Scientology that is, is very damaging is the, the fact that it, it really, it trains you to be unemotional, at least on the outside right. and to not react and to not, um, express upsets or anything because those are all, all, all of those things are what in Scientology is called mis-emotions. They're inappropriate emotions for the moment and those things prevent you from doing your job. So they are not looked upon mm -hmm. kindly and the, the sort of group agreement is that you you shouldn't be reacting to anything you should just keep on going and put your head down right. and get back to work and right. so that does have an impact on your internal processes too i i don't know if i can exactly exp articulate this very well but if if you are constantly um practicing not emoting then you tend to kill your emotions I, mm. that's probably the best way i can put it and mm -hmm. one of the things that happened when i was writing the book was you know i had an editor that i now lovingly refer to as my editor slash therapist <laughs> because I began writing the book a long time ago and I had a lot of problems like ever forcing myself to sit down and complete it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you, you mentioned the letter to my children. I, I 
credit Larry Wright uh, a great deal for for this book ever actually getting written because I had all sorts of people saying, write a book, write a book, write a book. And my wife was pestering me and I was like, okay, okay, I'm busy, I'm busy. And I eventually called up Larry and I said, Larry, you're the best writer that I know. Give me your best advice. All these people are telling me to write a book. Like, just... And I've become very, very good friends with Larry over the years. And he said, Mike, what do you think my best book is? And I said, I don't know. Oh, the book I'm most proud of. He said, Looming Tower, Going Clear. I don't know. Like I started rattling off all his Pulitzer Prize winning books and stuff. And he said, nope, nope. It's a... Uh, it's a book I published of letters to my parents because mm -hmm. that is what's most that's what's most meaningful to me. You should figure out what is meaningful to you. And he said, you know, I know you pretty well. I know your story pretty well. Maybe you should be telling your life story so that your children at some point might mm. actually hear from you about what your views of the world and your life and what you did and why you did it. I said, mm. okay, you just motivated me. I now have the motivation that it's not just someone else telling me you need to write a book or me sort of vaguely thinking. I thought, yeah, you're right. That's actually yeah. a really, that's a great, that's a great um, foundation to build on. But right. so I wrote the book and sort of, and it was, you know, a lot as I had been trained to do, uh, like a legal brief. It was a lot mm. of facts. It was, mm. I was here and then I was there and then this happened and then that happened and then I did this and then I did that. And my editor said to me, mm, no. We need you. We need to hear you in this. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking? What was your right. thought process? What was happening? How, we, how did this make you feel? And so we spent hours and hours and hours on the phone um, with her sort of dragging things out of me. Um, tell me what you were thinking here. Tell me what you were thinking there. And then she would say, okay, now go back and rewrite that section to mm. incorporate what we've just talked about. Right. And then she would then, like her, the editing process was like ultimately she did sit down and actually edit the words on the page. But mm. to begin with, the editing process was not what I had contemplated at the outset. It wasn't mm. like, Oh, you you need to break this sentence up, or you've got a weak repetition, or this or that. It was right. no. Tell me the story here. Tell me about this. Tell me about it. Oh, yeah. Now you go back and rewrite it. She didn't write anything. She just when now having talked to me, when I would now present my next draft of that section, she would say, "Oh yeah, this is great. This this is just what you told me." Or she'd go, "Well, wait a minute. Didn't you tell me X, Y, and Z? You didn't put that in." Or, mm. I still feel like I'm not getting it. We need more. So mm. a lot of the, the um, emotion that is contained in the book had to be dragged out of me. Mm. And mm. I, I think that that's a, a really 
sort of significant thing because as I say at the end, I had pretty bad nightmares constantly. Mm-hmm. Like classic PTSD syndrome nightmares. They were always the same. I was always back. I was trapped. I couldn't get out. At the end of the book, I suddenly had this realization, you know, I haven't had any nightmares and Hmm. the the nightmares have stopped and Hmm. they continue. I haven't had any since. And Mm -hmm. I, like I said, I think that she was like my therapist. Hmm. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about therapy after involvement in cults and you know, I have my own views about that. And obviously, you know, a Scientologist has a, a, a really biased opinion of anything right. related to psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, right. any of any word that begins with psi is except Scientology is a, like <laughs> a bad word. So I uh, but I don't I don't um, I don't have a bad opinion of therapists or psychiatrists or anything like I used to I do I have however heard from a lot of people that unless you consult with someone who is specifically trained and experienced in dealing with people who have had been involved in a cult like Scientology that it's pretty much not been a success Right. What has been successful for me, and I'm not sure that I speak for everyone, but what has been most successful for me is talking to other survivors yes, and sharing experiences and, and the, the big realizations that you have along the way, oh, I wasn't crazy after all. Yes. And, and that is perhaps the most significant thing that happens with someone who has come out of this, you know, our sort of experience is yeah. to meet other people who explain, look, I, I was thinking this was fucking nuts. I, it it mm. just didn't make any sense to me. I hated it. And you go, oh my God, me too. So I yes. wasn't actually crazy. I wasn't, yes. it wasn't all me causing this. Oh my God, this is incredible. And yes. I credit that, um, to a large extent of for my ability to have gotten to where I am today, even though I don't think that I am, I'm not sure that I will ever be fully, I don't know, cured. I don't know what mm-hmm. even the right word is mm-hmm. uh, because I, I, I'm not sure that I can, I can be certain that I have uncovered all of the weird ways of thinking that were Mm -hmm. inculcated into me from a very young age. But I I think I've made a lot of progress and that progress is a result of dealing like, and it doesn't have to be ex-Scientologists. Like when, when Mm -hmm. I talk to you and Bonnie or Sarah and Mm -hmm. Nippy or, Mm -hmm. or even, you know, Roberta Blevins who was in an MLM for God's sake, I learn yeah. things and I hear things and it it changes my perspective about the world and my perspective about myself. And yeah. the the sort of big then added onto that was someone forcing me to to 
emote, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Those things combined have been enormously beneficial. Yeah. You know, oh, there's so much I want to say to you. Um, the one thing I want to say to you is that, you know, reading your book brought up a lot of stuff for me. A lot. Like, so The Vow Season 2, you know, I thought I'd resolved certain things and I had resolved a fair amount, but The Vow Season 2 brought a lot of shit up because there were relationships in my mind and in my heart, so to speak, that I hadn't resolved or examined carefully, you know, like Nancy Salzman, Lauren, things like that. And they all, it all came up and my, my nights were filled with, I'm back with them again. And they, the dreams had stopped and suddenly it all came back up and it was very painful Reading your book, I read your book over a two-day span. Reading your book completely fucked me up. Not in a bad way. Just what happened is I thought, oh my God, I, I feel this so keenly. I feel I wasn't in, in, in the hole in the same way, but I've been in a few cults, you know. I've been in a few really fucked up situations. And, and reading your story just brought up all these emotions because sometimes in, in, in your writing, you're, you're kind of matter of fact about something. And I'm like, oh my fucking God. That's horrible. Right. But it's almost the, the matter of fact delivery without too much meta commentary. Just the information is just so fucking horrifying. You don't need to say anything anymore to me. You don't need to tell me how you feel because I know how I feel and I'm assuming you feel the same way. You know? Oh, that's a great point. It was very, it was very, very moving in that way. I wanted to ask you a question because, um, you know, I, I told you that I've been, you know, I, I wrote my version of my book. And I'd written a, a version in 2019. I'd pretty much written it. And then after the trial, I needed some time off. And then I, I re-looked at the book and I realized I have to change, I have to change my framing. You know? So I'm still working on it. And you've given me such um, inspiration because we had a conversation the other day where you said, you know, to take your time. Just get it, get it the way you want it, you want, we want it to be, which is, which is what I'm doing now. Were there times in writing your book that you approached places that felt so uncomfortable that you kind of needed to take a step back things that were so painful, like holes you just didn't want to go down. Yes. Yes. Mostly surrounding my mother. Mm. I, it was, it, that was a very tough decision for me, whether to include all of the, all of what I did include in the book. Um, I, I struggled with the idea of, uh, like, it, it doesn't end up being a very flattering portrait of her. And yet I, like, I adored her. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was hard because there was nothing that I could, that I could write about what happened after I left that would be flattering towards her or not make her seem like a bit of a monster. Mm. And yet, that was something that was really significant to me. I mean, it was it was so significant to me that I didn't even speak out about Scientology for two years, like as I talk about in the book. And, you know, the, the heartbreak of 
trying to going to Australia to try and see her and having her whisked away so that I wouldn't, you know, be in her presence and suppressing her in her final days. And then having her write that or not having a letter sent to me that she's purportedly wrote about, about what a, a disgusting, horrible person I was. But I felt like, um, like some of the other things in the book also that I sort of struggled with, but for different reasons, um, that if I was going to be honest about what my experiences had been, that I needed to include that because it was significant. It was a significant thing, and it's still something that I feel emotional about. Um, you know, there was other things that, that ended up in there that I didn't know whether I wanted to include or not. And, you know, I generally came down on the side of, well, it did happen and somehow it informs the bigger picture of what I was thinking about or what I was going through, you know, some of the experiences or engagement. I was, I was terribly worried that if I included any of my interactions with celebrities, the only thing that anybody would think was that this was a celebrity gossip book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, struggled quite a lot with that because obviously I had a lot of interaction with a lot of celebrities. Right. And I felt like I can't leave it all out because no. that would be kind of ridiculous because, you know, I, I, it's, there's so much. But yeah. on the other hand, I was like, oh, God, I know what's going to happen. Every yeah. media interview that I do about the book is going to be, oh, Tom Cruise this and John Travolta that and Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley and blah, 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 mm. blah, blah. Mm. I'm like, mm. I don't want people to get to get the wrong idea about what this book is about. I'm not writing it as a tattletale about celebrities. Right. So there was, there was that. I think that the other thing that I had difficulty with is... Um, or or the black hole as you as you yeah yeah talk about uh are, are the the moments of of um I I guess probably the most unflattering things that I say about myself, which is the reaction to the death of my child and my father, and. Again, that those things, I, I didn't want to candy coat them or make it sound any better or make myself seem less, less um, monstrous than I do because I, I really don't... I, I look back on those things with, with such regret and, and right. I can never change them. Um, and you know, those are those times I, you know, I struggled with and I had a, like, I had such a hard time with the, the incident with the death of my father and my mother's mm -hmm. involvement. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I sort of stopped for a while. I couldn't right. even remember what day, it, what date it was. So I had to try and get his death certificate which I ultimately did. 
Um, and, you know, from, from some place in, in the middle of Australia somewhere that I managed to track down to get it because I didn't want to get the date wrong. I didn't want to mm -hmm. get the circumstances wrong. I wanted to have the facts in there as they were because I know Scientology will leap up and down and, and jump on everything and say, oh, this idiot doesn't even know when his father died or he doesn't even know when his child was born or, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, right. But those moments and those very, very personal experiences, familial experiences and relationships, they were the hardest things for me. And, you know, the suppressed emotions of those times got brought into, just like you're talking about, got brought into the present where yeah. now I'm not, I'm not confined by those dictates that you cannot have emotion about them. And they tend, like, all of that sort of gushed out at, mm. at like, in, in present time as if it, it had was happening right then yeah. but because there had been no emotion expressed back when those events happened 20 or 25 years ago and yeah. now i have the freedom to be emotional about things and boy it was emotional yeah yeah you know your your book is a great gift in that way because you know i have i have these these struggles with regret i have struggles with moral injury and as I read your book, I mean, I can see, okay, Mike's experienced moral injury, probably still feels it, regret probably still feels it. And, but what it did is it brought up things that um, are in me that I haven't paid a lot of attention to because I've been so, so much in survival mode, like I have to get my psyche right and I have to like be a productive person again and stuff like that. Um, but it brought some of those things back up for me. So it was a great gift in that way, you know? that I could start to feel those things that feel unresolved. Because well, it's clear I'm, in your writing that you feel unresolved about these things still. Yeah. Well, I am very, very appreciative of that. And mm. it is always the greatest um, sense of gratification that I get of people who I know and respect and people who I know have experienced things similar to what I have experienced telling me that, well, you know, what you did or what you said or what you wrote has been helpful to me mm -hmm. because that's why I do it. I, it's right. not, um, it's not an expression of, of, you know, like I, if, if, if I wrote a book, for the purpose of sorting things out in my own head, I would never have published it. Yeah. I wrote yeah. a book with the idea that maybe it would give um, hope to other people. Maybe it would mm -hmm. give insight to people. Maybe it would it would help them in some way to overcome whatever problems they have in their life. Maybe their problems aren't as dramatic as mine have been. And right. they will look at them and go, hey, if that asshole could figure get himself out of that mess, well, I can get out yeah. of the mess that I'm in. And that that's right. why I have that quote at the beginning of the book. Um, you know, I really do believe that it is possible 
for anybody to change the circumstances that they are in and that it's never too late to to change it's never too yep. late to change the circumstances of your life and you can and no matter how daunting it may seem or how impossible you've been told it is to do anything about it you can and yeah. look at you and look at me and look at sarah and look at nippy and look at mark and claire headley and look at all these people who have managed to break through that mind prison and escape and yeah. now have uh look there is another way of looking at life mark which is you know yes you can have regrets but if you live in regret you don't move forward you can also look at your life as preparing you to do what it is that you are doing now and yeah. what you are doing now you have been prepared to do by your experiences that you had, no matter how all the bad ones included with the good ones, because there were yeah. good experiences. I, you know, you made friendships, you, you met people that you would never have otherwise met. You went places that you would never have other, and you saw things that you never would have otherwise seen. And I look at my life that way as, okay, yeah, it, there was a lot of shit. <laughs> and yeah, there was a lot of, of really terrible stuff. But on the other hand, having gone through that shit and terrible stuff, I know how strong I am. Yeah. I know a lot about how this, how this works. I know a lot about what the, the trickery is and the, the deception and... I know and can help other people navigate their way. And yeah. for that, I'm incredibly thankful. Right. I feel the same way. I feel, I was, I was saying to Bonnie the other day, I feel so on purpose right now. Like yeah. I feel so clear about what I'm doing, you know, I have no idea what the future brings, but I'm really clear on the things I'm talking about, what I'm saying, what I stand for. And, and Sarah and I joke about this, you know, we, a couple of years ago, we said, you know, we're now doing the shit that we joined ESP to do. You know, now we're doing yes. this stuff. That's why we joined. Exactly. You know, now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, it, it's funny. I say, I say to people, you know, I used to think I was saving the world with Scientology. Now I think I'm saving the world from Scientology. I remember that in your I've, book. I've got a purpose. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, Mike, I wanted to just ask you one other thing. We'll just bring up another thing, which is um, something I think, because you've been, you've, you, you know, the, in, in the vow part two, you see these people that are still loyal, you know, and they're still out there on social media doing their thing. First of all, like what's, what, what, how did you guys feel about watching that? Oh, I know Christy and I were looking at one another going, oh my God. Oh my God, please wake the fuck up. Yeah. Oh, Nikki, what is wrong with you? I uh, like, yeah. you know, um, how, how do you get through to someone like that? And right. that is a, that's a really, really tough. That's a really tough question, Mark. And I, I got to tell you, I have come to the conclusion that there are certain people who are happier, you know, both Nexium and Scientology provide a 
a way of going through life where you don't have to think. Yes. You don't have to make any decisions for yourself. Every decision is actually made for you in advance and preordained. And you are, at, it's like, a, I can go through life knowing what's right and wrong about everything that confronts me and what I'm supposed to do right now and what I'm supposed to do now and what I'm supposed to do now. And it is, for some people, a crutch that they cannot throw away. Mm -hmm. That as as fucked up and unhappy mm -hmm. and messed up and shitty as their life is, mm -hmm. the one thing they have is yeah. the certainty that they know exactly what they're doing and exactly what's right. And right. trying to shake that in certain people or get rid of that crutch in certain people, I haven't yet figured out how you go about doing that because it's like, taking away their life it's like taking away the thing that they are most attached to that yeah. makes them able to live it's like saying i'm i'm denying you your oxygen and and also like their mission because i was thinking about at the very beginning of your book you said um let me just read you something quickly you, you know it very well but the audience doesn't from a scientology perspective i was committing the ultimate act of betrayal that would damn me for eternity deserting the only group that could save mankind from a hopeless future of ignorance, pain, and suffering. It's, it's amazing. You write, when you wrote that, I was like, oh my God, I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to cross the, th the threshold of like, <laughs> I'm fucking done. But now yes. you also feel you have the comfort of, of having known everything, which you can't know anymore because you realize that's not true. And then you have the sense of like, I'm letting people down. I'm letting other people down. I'm letting the world down, you know, and, and you have to right. extricate your identity out of all that it's and, and you and you put it so perfectly that's exactly how it felt yeah stepping across that threshold yep yeah like i think that um the only hope for those people who are still convinced that that keith is their savior and had only their best interests at heart and always will um you know, so, someone said, and I, I think it was Nancy in there, you know, uh, I loved Keith and I thought that he loved me, but then I realized that the only person Keith loves is, is, is himself. I think that was Nancy that said that. Whoever said it, was, it was very profound because that is, that is the essence of all of these people. The only person that is important to them is themselves. The only person yes. that they love is themselves. I think that for those people who are still convinced that Keith loves them and had their best interests at heart and always will, that uh, I, I think that they are doomed to... Mm. to go through life believing that for the rest of time. I don't think that there is anything that will change their mind. I mean, mm. a guy being sentenced to 120 years in prison for the crimes that he committed should be enough of a wake-up call to realize that hmm, maybe all wasn't but as Mike, it seemed. Mike, you know the government's all corrupt. Every corner of yeah, it, Yeah, of right? course. You know? I mean, they're all corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you oh know, my. I talk about that in my book too. That's another. Yes, that's another the whole hallmark. thing about how 
that 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 uh, all they all the, all our people did was steal Xerox paper. I I, I remember yes. thinking, oh my god, the stories that were they were selling, and I and I bought I bought the stories when I was in, as I'm sure you did. Yes, of course, of course. You you know you don't believe that the the greatest man in the history of of the universe is going to be lying to you. Yeah, like. That that concept is so far removed from, like, only someone who's not a Scientologist could possibly believe that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, you have to get out in order yeah. to have that thought, let alone belief. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, you know, it's sad. It's very sad. Like. At one point, I would love to have the opportunity to try to talk to someone like that. Not Scientology, not a Scientology person. I don't think I could succeed with a, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, bubblehead Scientologist because they look at me like I am, they are are indoctrinated to believe I'm the devil incarnate. So everything that I say just gets blocked off instantly. But right. if I could talk to someone that like Nikki Klein or one of those mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. and talk from my experience in Scientology, comparing things and not being not accusative, but just pointing out, look, this is what happened. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this isn't what's happened with Keith, but you know, here's how mm-hmm. it went down in Scientology. Right. That there is a possibility that you may be able to get somewhere. But I don't think that you or Sarah or anybody no. could possibly no. have any impact on them at all. Not at all. No, we are we are we are we've been completely poisoned. And by the way, what you're describing is what it was like, like watching Going Clear and watching uh, the show you and Leah did together, you know. It it was that I was making sense of things, you know. Yes. As I was watching watching you guys show, I do think it would be amazing for you to talk to certain people from from, you know, other cults who are still struggling. You know, the thing I wanted to go back to again is just I've been so embroiled, you know, with with the vow season one and two. Like my whole life has been, you know, Nixium, 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 and. What was so great about, you know, reading your book is I got to get some distance from my particular thing and yeah. take your your journey. And so I got to see my thing from a distance. That's not exactly accurate. I got to see the pattern of my thing from a distance, but I've but all my all the stuff that was unresolved came up, which I think is important. I think it's important the stuff comes up because I think it's, you know, you gotta do something with it, you know. At least yep. feel it at minimum so exactly has been a great a great gift and i and i know just just so you know i know other because what's happening is with with um the vow season two and with my podcast i have a lot of people reaching out you know saying thank you it helped me make sense of this that the other and since i posted the posted the picture of your book uh two days ago um or yesterday whenever it was a lot of people have reached out and said "I, i read the book it helped me make so much sense of things you know, oh, that's wonderful. N- not Scientologists. You know, other that, people. That's wonderful, Mark. That that's the best news that I can hear. Absolutely the best. That that is 
incredibly gratifying and and I can never hear enough of that. It's it's sort of what the fuel that that keeps me going is hearing yeah. from people like that. And it happens often and I'm not saying that it I I'm you know lacking in that, but it yeah. everyone, every person that says that is 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 significant to me. Yeah. It it, it hasn't lost um it's sheen at all yes. to hear that from people. Yeah. And not at all. And doesn't it also it make does. you feel like it was worth it? It was worth it. It yes. was worth it. For this, it, it was worth it. absolutely does. Yeah. Absolutely it does. And, you know, you, people say to me, well, how, how can you keep going like they... They keep putting up these videos of your daughter and they, yeah. they smear you all over the internet and this and that and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah. you know, that that I know comes with the territory. I yeah. am very aware of what what that is. But on the other hand, the the gratitude and the appreciation and the thanks that, that come from people are uh, like a thousand times more important and more valuable to me than the yapping of of the Scientology world who are increasingly less relevant in, in, to anyone like you know yeah i think that, that things have changed a lot in the last 10 years in particular where people just nowadays are like yeah, whatever. Whatever Scientology says, we know it's bullshit. Right. Whatever they say, it's just we know they lie. So, right. I also I recognize, um, I recognize this because Christy tells me this all the time. I do have a very thick skin. Like I am, I am unimpressed with by, or don't have. <clears throat> a lot of care of what people think about me mm. other than people that I have respect for. Right. Like if I, if, if someone says, says shit about me and they're nobody that I care about, it literally, it is water off a duck's back. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> that's probably a, a uh, good and a bad, uh, you know, residue of my experiences in Scientology because they don't think that that's always a good trait. But mm. in the line of, of, of work that I'm in right now, uh, it's a very good trait because good. The, the, the slings and arrows that get thrown at you are you know, intended to be hurtful and intended to stop you from doing what you have set out to do. And I don't intend to have the, that happen. I don't intend to have them right. figure out how to stop me from doing what I'm doing. Right, right. Man, it's good to know you're in the world. I tell you, and you know this feeling, like it can feel pretty alone when you first wake up and to have yes. other people <clears throat> that have that sort of the fortitude and the and the and the strength to like do what's necessary is like the most amazing thing in the world, you know. So feels less alone, people like you in the world, let me tell you. 
Less well, I, th- that that feeling is mutual, Mark. You know that. Absolutely mutual. I could go on forever, but listen, I am so appreciative you've taken the time to talk with me. I think you're, you know, everybody needs to read your book. It is, it will help people. I use the word defrag. It's a very, maybe it's a very Nixium type of ter- terminology, but I use that term still, defragging the drive. Your book will help do that in so many ways. And the, and the other thing, again, it's just, you know, so honest i mean i just there, there were times i was just i was just like take a breath in it just at, at, at the sort of depths you were going into you know and just saying yeah i did this yeah i did that yeah i did this i thought that and then i realized this you know just so like beautifully matter of fact and i'm like yep i know exactly what that's like you know so amazing amazing book really amazing thank you so much thank you and i i am i am really honored when you when you said the, I'm the first guest on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm going to put that on my wall. <laughs> uh, well, it's cool though. Cause I didn't know where I was going with this thing, but you know, I, when we were, t- we were talking during the vow, I just thought, man, it'd be great to, great to do that. And Bonnie said, you have to have Mike as your first guest. You have to do it. So here it is. So again, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Mark. Thank you. So that was my amazing conversation with Mike Rinder, an incredible man. As a reminder, please subscribe to my podcast wherever you listen to it or if you watch it on YouTube. I have a lot more I want to talk about. So we will talk soon.